Church in the Wild. That is the series that we began last week. And uh, Brother James dealt with those first two verses. I, I want to start out this morning with a statement. Then I want to elaborate on the statement before we ever even get to our text. Here's the statement. All sound theology must begin and end with doxology. All sound theology must begin and end with doxology. What is meant by this is that if we simply are doing theology from an intellectual standpoint, then we're missing the point of theology. If all we are doing is gaining information into our brain about facts or, or statistics or definitions, and that is all that we have, then we are missing the reason for theology. When you correctly understand and think and are coming to grips with who the Lord is and what He has done, sound theology will spontaneously burst forth into praise. So when you are doing the work of theology... The study of God, when you are doing the study of God, when you are doing that work, if you're doing it right, then what it is going to do is it is going to move from simply information in the brain to a movement into the heart, into the entire being of who you are, and you will spontaneously burst forth in praise. And this is exactly what Peter does in verse 3. When Peter says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is doing doxology. He is doing praise. He is doing worship. When Peter begins to think about the salvation that he's about to start talking about in verse 3 and following, he cannot simply hold back the praise and the worship that bursts forth. But here's the question that I, I asked myself. Why does Peter need to write that down? Peter could just start talking about who God is, right? I mean, I mean, he could just start talking about the salvation that we have. He could just start there. But instead, he starts with, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He lets us know that he is praising he lets us know that he is doing doxology and he's doing worship. He could have not put that in there and simply just told us about our salvation. So why does Peter, who is no doubt praising God, why does he write down his worship for us? I think it is related to the purpose of the letter. Peter is writing to a church that is in the wild of this world. They have already suffered the dispersion. They are now exiles. The Roman Empire. They are experiencing and will continue to experience troubles and difficulties in spiritual warfare. And he wants to raise the church above the level or the plane of the world to something higher. He wants to prepare them and encourage them to live for Jesus 
elevated above the troubles and the sufferings and the, 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 the difficulties that they have in the wild of this world. So what he's doing is he's writing down for us what this should look like. He's saying, listen, I don't want you just to know about your salvation. I want you to be bursting forth in praise for your salvation, which will no doubt rise you above the difficult levels that you are living in. John Calvin wrote, Peter invites the faithful to spiritual joy, which can swallow up all the opposite feelings of the flesh. Let me read that again. I think it's a powerful statement. Peter invites the faithful to spiritual joy, which can swallow up all the opposite feelings of the flesh. So this is what Peter wants us to do. He wants us to think about sound theology, who God is and what God has done for us. And he wants us to burst forth with joyful praise and worship in order to transcend any difficulty, trouble, spiritual battle that we experience. So I'm going to read verse 3, 4, and 5. Then we're going to talk about this great salvation that Peter wants us to think about and then praise God for. He says in verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon this time in His Word. Lord, I come to you, I thank you so much for your Word. God, that alone is a great mercy you've given us, a great grace that you've given us, that you and your love and your mercy and your grace have given us your very words. And Lord, I pray that we learn from Peter this morning. I pray, God, that as we study who you are and what you've done for us with this great salvation and in this wild world that we live in, I pray that we become people of joyful praise and worship. Because, Lord, if we are not a people of praise and worship, if all we have is intellectual stuff in our brain, then the difficulties and the trials and the, the, the troubles are going to compress on all of that. And all that stuff will be meaningless. But, Lord, if we have moved beyond simple intellect to real sound theology where our entire being is moved by the reality of who you are and what you have done, then when those difficulties and troubles and hardships come, we will burst forth in, pray, uh, in joyful praise and rise above the levels of those difficulties, living in the wild but living totally different. And Jesus, I ask that you would help us today as we are in your word, as we are studying Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are open to be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The first thing that Peter points out after his doxology is he points us to the mercy of God. You see that in verse 3? He says, according to his great mercy. Now, I think most of us, when we think about the mercy of God, most of the time we think or um, we're, we're looking at the, the pitiful condition that we're in. And the compassion that God has on us by not giving us what we deserve. 
Okay? If you were just looking at a, like a strict definitional understanding of mercy, that, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about God looking at our pitiful condition, seeing us in the mess that we were in, having compassion on us and for us, and not giving us what we deserve. And that is certainly true from a definitional standpoint. But I think in the New Testament, when words get used... I think they mean more than just their definition. And, and here's why I say that. Because what they're doing is they're using words that carry meaning from the Old Testament into the New Testament. So these aren't just words that we can just kind of pull out and say, okay, what's the definition of it? Okay, we're good. We understand it now. We really have to say, okay, how, did, how does this flow from the Old Testament into the New Testament? How does Jesus fulfill this? How does Jesus expand it? How does Jesus help us understand it more? And this is certainly true for this word, mercy. Now, the Greek word mercy is used in the Septuagint. We, we've talked about the Septuagint before. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay? So what they did originally, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic. And then when, in the intertestamental period, they began translating the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. So that when Peter arrives on the scene, Peter's Bible is the Greek Old Testament. That's what he's using. Okay? And in the Greek Old Testament, the Old Testament that Peter would have been reading from, this word mercy that he is using here is the same word mercy that is used for hased in the Old Testament. Okay? Now I've got to break this down because this is important for us to understand. Hased in the Old Testament was the covenantal loving kindness and mercy of God. It, it actually carried with it not just God seeing us in our pitiful condition and, and not giving us what we deserve. It's even more active than that. It is God setting his covenantal love and kindness upon us and making Israel a people. Let me give you one of these verses. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love, showing hased to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, showing mercy, covenantal mercy to thousands. So Peter is not just saying God is being compassionate and not giving us what we deserve. He is also saying God has entered into a covenant relationship with us through his mercy. His mercy has brought us into a covenant relationship with him. So we praise and we worship God because of his covenantal mercy. Now, the question is, how do we get into that covenant? Right? So if God sets his covenantal mercy on us, he sets his covenant on us, how do we get into that covenant? Well, this is where Peter is going to go. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused, caused us to be born again. The covenant mercy of God, of God is through the new birth. The new birth that has been caused by God. So when God 
brings you to new life. He brings you, he, he births you anew. You are regenerated. When that happens, you are then brought in. His covenant love is upon you. You are then brought into this new family. You are brought into this new reality. You are brought into this new covenant. And this is caused by God. God, I want to quickly speak on this because I think this is very, very important. And a lot of people get this twisted and messed up and, and it causes some confusion. If God is the cause of the new birth then that means we aren't the cause of the new birth, right? If God is the cause, then we're not the cause. We're the effect, not the cause. This is really, really important. Most people, I think, in the, in, in the United States, I would say, or at least um, Baptist tradition, um, I, I think most people think of it this way. I believe in Jesus, and when I put my faith in Jesus, then, then God births me anew. God brings me to life after I put my faith in Jesus. My faith is the cause of the new birth. Now that's a problem because here it says God is the cause of the new birth. Not me, not my faith, not me trusting God, not me putting you know, my faith into practice in God and then I'm born again. It's not me doing this. It's God causing me to be born again. The new birth happens to us by God. And that is where our faith gets created. You have no control over the new birth, just like you had no control over the, uh, phys- your physical birth. Right? You got birthed. Your mother gave birth. You did not give birth to yourself. You did not birth yourself. It happened to you, correct? I think there's a reason why God is using that language when he talks about regeneration and coming into the new covenant. This is something that happens to you. Our faith comes as a result of that. So here's what I want us to understand about regeneration, about being born again. The Spirit of God comes upon us. He is like the wind. We do not know where He is going. We do not know where He is coming from. The Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we are born again. We are made anew. And the cause of that new birth is that we put our faith in Christ. Are you with me? We trust God because we are born anew. Our hearts are made new. We're given new wills and new desires and new loves. And the moment that that happens, faith is fired off in us, and we trust God. Yes, I trusted God. Yes, I wanted God. Yes, I went after God. But it's because I was born again. I don't know. I don't think this is Peter's main point here, but I want us to understand how the new birth works and how it doesn't work. I think it's also interesting to ask, where does Peter get this language of new birth from? Where does Peter get the the language of born again? I think there's... An implicit way that he gets it and an explicit way. Implicit and explicit. Here's the implicit way that I think he's getting this language. It's probably, he probably has in mind passages from the Old Testament where the new covenant and newness come together. Where the new covenant is talked about in the Old Testament and with the new covenant language is a newness of people. Let me give you one example. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 
through 28. It says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you all from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I think it's very, very possible that Peter has in mind these these implicit ideas from the Old Testament where we know we know a new covenant is coming and with this new covenant comes a new people. The explicit way or the explicit reason I think he gets this language is from Jesus. Does Jesus not say when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, does he not say unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. So Peter gets this directly from Jesus. And he probably understands that that Jesus' explicit direct language is coming from this Old Testament concept of the New Testament coming, the new covenant coming, and a brand new people being a part of it. And so he says, we have God, we have, he has caused us to be born again. And just like Jesus' understanding of being born again, Peter's understanding of being born again includes entrance into a new order of existence, a new order of humanity, a new creation. Something brand new, something based upon something brand new, something powerful, something living, something that moves forward different than there has ever been before. And I know this because of what he says next. He talks about a living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, if you have a living hope, that is in direct contrast to a dead hope. I know that's an oxymoron, but follow with me. Hope that is dead is hope that is based on futile things. Things that are going to perish in the end. Things that are going to spoil, things that are are going to be taken away, things that aren't based on everlasting stuff. Are you with me? So a dead hope, a hope that is not living, is a hope that is based upon stuff that's going to be taken away. Our world lives for this. They put their hope in things and in people that eventually will let them down. They will spoil, they'll be taken away, they will fade, they will be gone. But a living hope, a living hope is based, as Peter says, is based through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the hope of those who are born again is based on the reality that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he brought a brand new creation into being. There's there's an amen should be right there. That's one of the most unbelievable things that has ever happened to humanity. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, a brand new creation started, church. A brand new humanity started. A brand new reality started. New life bursts forth from God in Christ and now onto us. 
Jesus Christ was given was resurrected from the dead. And when he stepped forward, this new creation began. And we have been, because of the covenant mercy of God, through the the regeneration and new birth, we have been brought into this new living hope. So our hope is inseparable from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul says, listen, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are most to be pitied. Because we are wasting our lives. Have you ever heard someone, when they're arguing for Christianity to be true, have you ever heard someone say something like this? Well, listen, if, if I'm wrong and you're right and God doesn't exist and Jesus isn't real and let's say that you're right and I'm wrong, well, you know what? I've lived a good life and everything's been wonderful. But if I'm right and you're wrong, then you're going to die and go to hell. And they kind of use that language to, to argue someone into believing in Jesus. That is unbiblical, church. The only way you can say that is if you haven't had any kind of sacrifice for Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. If Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, I have wasted my life. What am I doing being a pastor and serving and sacrificing and giving? What are you doing coming to church and reading your Bible and loving and serving each other and going through the hardships of relationships and troubles and living in this wild world? What's the point of all this if Jesus didn't get resurrected from the dead? Paul says, if he's not resurrected, then we are pitiful and we've wasted our lives. So our living hope is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then there is a new creation, there is a new reality, there is a new humanity, and we are in it. Praise God. This living hope, hopefulness, that things won't always be this way. Things will be greater and better and more wonderful. You know, we look around our world today, do we not see hopelessness in people? Maybe you've got friends and family and co-workers that they seem hopeless. I don't want us to get caught thinking that hopelessness is just kind of a modern idea. Hopelessness has been written about since the dawn of humanity. Generations have struggled and dealt with hopelessness. Even the Greeks and Romans struggled with hopelessness. And Peter is telling his readers that the Christian hope is an everlasting hope because of Christ. The ground of our hope is everlasting. The reality is based on the resurrection. And it is a guarantee that a future hope is coming because Christ lives forever. And that is why Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where the thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I want you to see his, his train of thought, where he's going with all this. He says, according to his great mercy, his covenant mercy, he has caused us to be born again into this new covenant, into this, again, into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance. See, he's, he's thinking about hope. He's thinking about covenant. He's thinking about goodness and greatness that is coming. And he says, we have been brought into an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. Now listen, if, if the Christians whom Peter is writing to 
have been dispersed from their homes of origin. This last statement would be huge. Because most of Peter's audience probably has, they've lost their homeland, they've lost most of their wealth, seeing the fact that wealth was tied up in, and social status for that matter, was tied up into property. Land that you owned, property that you had. This is where every, everything was tied up in this, your wealth, your social status. And if you've been dispersed, if you've been, been run away from your land, that means your inheritance, your children's inheritance, your grandchildren's inheritance, gone. I need you to understand that because that's what's going to make this so powerful. If Peter is writing to a people who have lost their inheritance, this earthly inheritance that was going to be passed on from generation to generation and stay in the family, this land that had been given to them by their fathers and they were going to pass it on to their children, it is now gone. Then it's going to make this eternal inheritance even more powerful. Peter is pointing out that these Christians, these People who are now foreigners in respect to their place of residence have been born into a new family with a new inheritance given by a father who owns everything. What is an inheritance based on? How much your father has, right? How much your parents have. You're only going to get what they've got. They can't give you more than they have. They can't give you more than they've accumulated for themselves. They can only give you what they have. Peter is saying, listen, if you are a part of this new humanity, this new family, this new covenant, this new creation, if you've now been brought in this new family, you've been given inheritance by the one who owns everything. Peter does not give the exact content of this inheritance. But he does say three things that it's not, which I think will make us imagine stuff that we can't even, I mean, he only goes so far. Here's what he says, three things. He says it is imperishable. Look at it. Verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable. This inheritance that is given by God cannot be corrupted. It is not liable to death. It is not subject to destruction. The inheritance that the Christian has, everything that these Christians have lost because of the dispersion, that's not how the eternal inheritance would be. See, they lost that that inheritance. That worldly inheritance, they lost it. Can't lose this one. This one's imperishable. The inheritance that will be given to Christians when Jesus returns will be a glorious treasure that can never be lost. What hope for these Christians who were dispersed and had lost their their land and their inheritance. Peter says, listen, what you're going to get when Jesus comes back, you can never lose. Second, undefiled. This inheritance is unstained. It's unpolluted. Everything in the fallen creation has in some sense been tainted by sin, correct? Even the best of what we have here, in some sense, it has been tainted by sin. 
Therefore, it is flawed. It's not perfect. Not so with the eternal inheritance that we're going to get from God when Jesus returns. It will be undefiled. It will be unstained by sin. It, it, it also means there won't be any dirty money. This has been, hasn't been gained through any kind of has false pretense. This has been gained by Jesus Christ. It has been won through the perfect purity of Christ. It is undefiled because Christ can't be defiled. So when Jesus comes back, the eternal inheritance that we get will be imperishable and it will be undefiled. And number three, it will be unfading. I've bought a lot of flowers for my wife in the 27 years, I think we've almost been together. And I always try to pick out the most beautiful and magnificent flowers that I can find because I want them to match the beauty of my wife, you know? You try to pick those flowers that, that, that match how you feel about your wife and how beautiful she is and how beautiful you want these to be. And so you try to get the best flowers that you can. But no matter how magnificent those flowers are, do you know what always ends up happening to those flowers? They always end up withering, fading, and dying every single time. The meaning of this Greek word, unfading, was actually used to describe flowers that would not wither or die. Peter is using it in this context to tell us that the inheritance that we're going to receive from God is an inheritance that will never lose its magnificence. It will never lose its glory. It will never lose its beauty. It will never lose its, its wonder. What you will receive when Jesus returns, you will it will never get less. In fact, I would argue it will only always get better. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And then look at what he says. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This inheritance at this very moment is being kept safe for you. Now, I think most of us, when we think of heaven and we think of earth, we think of up and down, right? And probably for good reason. That's kind of the language that gets used. But we also know that there is a sense in which it's right here with us, right? We, we know that, that there's spiritual warfare all around us, right? Um, we know that, that we ask God's presence to be here with us. So there is a sense in which heaven and earth are, are also kind of just separated by a, a thin veil, right? We can't, we can't peel it back. We can't step into it. Now, we know that Jesus has stepped into it. We know angels have stepped into it. All right, I don't, I don't, it doesn't really work the other way. But we know that there is this reality that just on the other side of this veil that we can't get into, there is the glory of God. And, and what's going to happen is, is right now, this glorious inheritance is being kept for us in this spiritual realm that we can't get to, by the way, that nobody else can get to to mess it up. But when Jesus comes back, that veil, that thin layer between us and heaven is going to be ripped completely. And God's glory and earth are going to be com combined in this beautiful way. And then we're going to have heaven on earth forever. And God will be with us. He will be our God. We will be his people. And what will happen on that day is when this inheritance is given to us, 
It is going to be the most magnificent. It's going to be imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's being kept right now by the power of God. God is keeping it for you, which means it ain't going nowhere. It's not going to go anywhere. God is keeping it for you until the time that Jesus comes back, and then it's going to be given to you. Now, it's not just the inheritance that's being protected. It's not just the inheritance that is being kept safe by God's power. But the Christian is being kept safe by God's power too. Look at what it says. It says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then he says, who? Who's the who? You. You. You who, are, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. You are being, church, listen to me. You are being, you are in the wild right now. Church in the wild. But you are being guarded by God's power in the wild. He is keeping your inheritance for you. But until you get that inheritance, he is protecting you in the wild. He is guarding you by his power in the wild. And you say, how do I know that? Do you have faith in Jesus right now? Church, do you have faith right now in Jesus? Yes or no? You're being guarded. If he wasn't guarding you, you wouldn't have faith. That faith was a gift given to you by God at the new birth. He guards and protects his gift. He is the author and finisher of your faith. So right now in this moment, if you have faith, if you are trusting, if you are living out the church in the wild right now, you are being guarded by God's power. You have faith in Jesus through the trials of the present age. Not because of your power, because of God's power. He has kept your faith up to this point, sure. And guess what? If you are truly born again, he will keep your faith sure until Jesus comes back and you get the inheritance. You see why this is so encouraging to a people who have been dispersed and who have lost everything? You see why this is encouraging to us today? I want to end by giving an illustration to help you understand this great salvation, to help you understand these first five verses that we've talked about over the last couple weeks. I want you to think of your salvation that Peter has been writing about like a chain. Okay? So here we go. We're going to engage our imagination. A chain. A chain that reaches back into eternity and it reaches forward into eternity. Are you with me? You got the chain? It's reaching back into eternity before you existed, before earth existed, before the universe existed, and it's going to reach into future eternity. This is an unbreakable chain because the links of this chain have been forged by God himself. Now, if you look back at the chain all the way as far as you can back, what you see is the sovereign foreknowledge of God. 
the sovereign foreknowledge of God that He used to choose and elect people for salvation. Before you existed, church, you were chosen. You are the elect exiles. Before you existed, you were chosen. If you look forward into eternity as far as you can down the chain, you find this inheritance that has been reserved for you. So let's just start at the beginning and look to the end. Let's leave out the middle for right now. At the very beginning, you were chosen, elected by the foreknowledge of God. The, the, the love of God was set upon you before you existed. Then, if you look forward, you see a great inheritance that, ha- that is awaiting for all of those that he foreknew. Those he foreknew, he's going to glorify. And they're going to get the inheritance. You with me? Long chain. Elect inheritance. If you look back on this chain a couple thousand years ago from this moment right here, you see Jesus being sent by God to shed His blood for your sin and to be raised from the dead. We look back from this moment 2,000 years in that chain and we see the death, the life, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you look back 1, 2, 10, 20 50, 70 years, you see the moment God resurrected you from your spiritual dead condition. So look back at that time, whenever that was for you. Look back on the chain. For me, I, I got to go back 30 years or so to, to that moment in the chain where God brought me to spiritual life. I believed in Jesus and I trusted Him and I Gave him my life. And I was sitting right back there and I got baptized right there. That moment when Jesus changed me. And if I look at the, the link I'm in right now, I see the power of God sanctifying me. I see him sanctifying you. Increasing our faith, filling us with more hope during troubling and difficult times. So all the way back to the beginning, if I can even call it the beginning of this chain, there's God setting His love upon me. And I look forward in the chain and I see this great inheritance that I'm going to get when Jesus returns and I'm glorified. And I, I look back 2,000 years and I see in the chain Jesus. And then I see my salvation. And I see that right now this increasing of faith that God is giving us and, and, and giving me so that I can live my life right now in troubling, difficult, hard times right now. And so if God did that and God did that and God did that and God did that, He's going to do this. He didn't do all this other stuff to fail us now. He didn't do all this other stuff so that we just give up here. He hasn't promised us that to bail on us now. You see why this is so encouraging to Peter's Peter's audience? Peter's saying, listen, 
You elect exiles. God elected you. And Jesus died for you. And you were born again. And you've got a living hope. And you've got an eternal inheritance that is coming that can never be taken away from you. So right now, trust God's got you. God has got you. And church, we live in a day where there is a lot of uncertainty about a lot of things. You know what that means? That means we just have everything in common with the Christians before us. Like we're not some special people that, you know, miss out on all the troubles and difficulties and hardships. Like God goes, you know, the way I'm going to sanctify all of my church is through hardships and difficulties. And so, Oh, except for these people right here. We'll make it really easy on them. The church has always lived in the wild. Always. They have been martyred and they have been killed and they have suffered and they have died and they have lived in, in difficult, troubling, hard times. And you know how they always made it through? Understanding sound theology that bursts forth into praise in the present. Here's who God is and here's what God has done. And I'm going to praise him for it. And I'm going to trust that he's got me right now in the midst of all this.